good morning. The next reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 to 9. Uh, you ready? Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each according for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Well, how are you feeling about your work? <laughs> Do you know, um, when my daughter finished university, she came to live with us for a year before she got married. And uh, I would often see her heading off. She was learning to be a school teacher. And as she was leaving, she would say, Daddy, work is grim. And I would say, yes, but darling, work is good. Uh, and then she would reply, and work should be governed by the gospel. So my children, they're, they're, they're very naughty. They sort of uh, tease me about these things. So Now, the subject in this series, uh, as I hope we're getting hold of now, is work. And we've asked, what is the point of work? And we've seen that work is good. There's a dignity, responsibility, necessity to work. We shouldn't be snobbish or super spiritual. And then we've asked, well, then what's the matter with work? And we've seen that work is grim, the pain of work, the frustration of work, the sweat and toil of work, the futility of work. We need to get real about work and grow up. A few years back, I went to stay with a friend of mine in a university town in St. Andrews, actually up in Scotland, beautiful, beautiful university town. My upstairs bedroom in his house overlooked his neighbor's garden. And I commented on it, brambles, thorns were spread across what was once a fine lawn. Ivy strangled previously impressive trees, that's creepers, strangled the tree, trees. The greenhouse, which obviously you don't need here, but we have glass houses, had patently once upon a time been a nursery for young seedlings, but it now had broken panes of glass and a door that was just blowing in the wind. And the fence, which had been painted, beautiful, wooden, now had panel, panels missing. And one hinge of the gate was broken, so it was just hanging off. And my host explained that his neighbor had been a leading world expert in his academic field. He was a professor in the School of Biology in St. Andrews University. And he had pioneered and researched in horticulture, and genetic development of disease resistance in plants. But the garden, which had been built into a hill, had been a template of his achievements, a little garden in its absolute splendor and beauty, showing something of what he achieved in his academic work. But in his latter years, this professor had been unable to walk and because it was built into a hill, he couldn't get out into the garden. And eventually he had died. And the brambles had grown up. And the fence panels had been beaten off by the winds. 
and the glass had broken. Now, is that all we've got to say then about work in a fallen world, that it is essentially futile? In this talk, I'm going to ask, start to try and answer the question, is there any hope for work? And I want to say, yes, there is, if our work is governed by the gospel. Surprisingly, there are very few places in the New Testament where the issue of work is addressed head on. You'll find in Ephesians 6, we just had it read, Colossians 3, Titus, and 1 Peter 2, with a few occasional verses here and there, arguably John the Baptist at the start of the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. There are huge amounts on character and Christian attitude and action, but the specific topic of work finds little direct treatment. I want us to go to Ephesians 6 because more than any other place, here we find what I spend so much of my time day by day being fitted in with God's big purposes. Before we get to the specific passage of Ephesians 6 and verses 5 to 9, allow me to put Ephesians 5 and 6 in their context within the book of Ephesians. Ephesians begins with Paul laying the great blessing God has won for and lavished on Christians. At the climax of the list of blessings in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 1, God shows and makes known to his people his great plan for his universe. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. He purposed his plan to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. So God has blessed us by making known his ultimate purpose to bring all things under the headship and rule of King Jesus. Jesus has entered into this world. Jesus has died to pay for the punishment of God at our human sin. Jesus has been raised, has now ascended, and is seated at the right hand of God. And God is in the business and will ultimately bring absolutely everything under the rule of King Jesus. The letter continues by showing us how God has done this and that this rule is to be displayed on the earth in God's church. He has done it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great Redeemer who now reigns for eternity and all things will be subject to him. He has done it by taking you and me from a position of spiritual death under the wrath of God. He has now seated us in the heavenlies with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 3, verse 10, he shows us that this rule this ultimate final rule of Jesus is on display today in the church. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is quite a thought. 
that in the church, the gathering of believers, whether it's three, five, thirty, fifty, five hundred, or five thousand, God has put on display as we submit ourselves to the rule of King Jesus, husbands obeying God, husbands and wives obeying God together, wives submitting to their husbands, workers submitting to their masters, as we submit ourselves to the rule of King Jesus. So we, as it were, display to the watching world something of the miracle that God has brought into being as he has restored order in this broken, rebellious world. One writer puts it that the last 50% of Ephesians is then devoted to showing how this cosmic victory of Christ and his ultimate rule over all things is to be demonstrated in the way we order our lives in every sphere of activity. So have you noticed when you read through Ephesians 4, it's not apparent from the NIV translation, it's not as accurate as the ESV, but have you noticed how uh, Paul uses the word walk, 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 walk? Chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. Chapter 4, verse 17. I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in the way of love. Chapter 5, verse 8. Walk as children of light. And chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully how you walk. So then Paul goes on, having spoken about personal character and behavior, to talk about how all of this is to work out in the fundamental unit of the Christian family, husbands, wives, and then children, workers. One writer has put it like this, Christ's cosmic victory erupts in visible expression in the local gathering of Christians. Now, I mentioned before, somebody's mentioned already that I used to work in the army. We were stationed in Germany for a while alongside Americans in their bases. And it was fascinating. Every time you went into an American base, it was a little piece of America. I expect they would say that the same about our base as well. But you went in, you know, the stars and stripes, the Coke dispenser, the golden arches. It was all there. You were like in a little piece of America. The cosmic victory of Christ for all eternity, with him enthroned, having redeemed his people, is now to be on display in the church. And so husbands, wives, I mean, it would be absurd to enshrine the rebellion of Genesis 3 in a church and to have enshrined in the church the kind of order that denies the order that is there in Genesis 2 and 3, Genesis 2, between the genders, male and female, with their different roles. And also in work. And that brings us to our passage today. But already you can see what Paul is suggesting, that in the area of the workplace, both within the Christian household and beyond, as the Christian person is to live out and to walk in a way that is worthy. 
Of course, in the first century, most of the labor in a pre-industrial society was contained within the household, and so the workplace is tackled within the household code. But now we go out to work, post-industrial revolution, we have to see it like that. Titus puts it like this, the way we work is to adorn the gospel. The word for adorn there is cosmeo, from which we get cosmetic. The way you work is to be a cosmetic to the gospel. That's what really matters at work. There are three areas then I would like us to consider. First, as a Christian, what has changed at work? Secondly, what now matters at work? Finally, what will last? What has changed? Three things. I have a new boss, a new goal, a new reward. Everything is new. Now, straight away in Ephesians 6, you can see, Ephesians 6 verse 5, you can see that Paul is speaking about what he calls slaves or bond servants. And you will find an awful lot of people who won't allow any discussion beyond this point. Oh, they say, knowing little of first century forms of employment, Paul is clearly outmoded and condoning slavery. We're not going to listen to any of this. In fact, vast numbers of the labor force in ancient Greece and Rome were bonded, just as vast numbers of our overseas students in London used to be bonded. I used to really enjoy it when we had lots of Singaporean bonded workers reminding them that they were slaves. Yes, there are accounts of appalling acts of injustice and brutality in the first century, and it must be wrong that one human being should ever enforce slavery on another, and Paul speaks against that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But slavery in the first century was not a system that was universally abused, and for many slaves their standard of living was well above that of free men. And with no welfare state, slavery was the safety net. First century Greek and Roman slavery was radically different to 19th century Afro-Caribbean. Just go online, have a look, you'll see it. Slaves were doctors, slaves were bankers, slaves were civil servants in the first century. At one point, 50% of the Athenian police force were slaves. In the fourth century, in the Greek civil service, slaves received a salary equal to the freeborn jurors, and their salaries were slightly lower, only slightly, than a magistrate or a member of parliament. One of the most successful bankers in 4th century Athens was a slave, Passion. The slave Kitty was a banker. The slave Evmathi was a banker. So was the timid, I can't say his name, Satyros and Formion. And some of you bankers probably feel exactly the same. You're slaves. Yes, you are. The 1st century... In the first century, the, emission, the emperor Domitian had to forbid the further medical training of slaves because there were so many doctors who were slaves that they were flooding the market. So don't write off what Paul has got to say just because the word slave is used here. We haven't done enough thinking if we do that. All the way through these verses and all the way through the parallel passages in Colossians and 1 Peter, Paul and Peter speak to the Christian worker as if he or she is working for more than simply a human employer. You're now a Christian. The Lord Jesus is enthroned. You've been redeemed out of this broken 
fallen, futile, frustrating world order. You have a new master. So, verse 5 of chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Verse 6. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Masters, verse 9. Treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no favoritism with him. In other words, since you've bowed the knee to King Jesus, since you've recognized him as your Lord and Savior, since you now acknowledge authority structures and lines of accountability as is shown by the way you treat your husband and the way you treat your wife and the way you treat your parents, since you recognize that authority structures are put in place by God, you must grasp that though you work for whatever organization you work for, or even though you may be self-employed, you have a higher command, a new master, a new employer, over and above the name that is written on your monthly pay statement. Ultimately, even as you obey that order or fill out that form or teach that class, you are serving the Lord. The image I've used before has been of a footballer following the transfer window and the purchase of players. Now, I know we don't have a lot of football. Well, you do have a football team, don't you? I'm sure it's a very fine football team, so we can use a footballer. And I seem to notice that people follow the English football teams. I can't think why. They're a bunch of complete hooligans. But anyway, you do seem to follow them, and I just hope you don't behave like them. But imagine for a moment Manchester City were to lose their key striker, Raheem Sterling, who I noticed scored a hat-trick last night against the Czech Republic. Yes! Imagine Manchester City were to lose Raheem Sterling and they were to lose them to Liverpool. You can just imagine Jurgen Klopp when Manchester City next play Liverpool, sitting Raheem down, because footballers aren't endowed with a huge amount upstairs, and saying to him, you will remember, won't you? You're not playing for the light blues. You're now playing for the dark reds, Liverpool strip. You're kicking that way, not that way. That goal, not that goal. And half-time, he'd probably have to do exactly the same thing again. And precisely the same, well, not precisely the same sort of, a similar sort of thing is going on here. As the Apostle Paul says, you've been redeemed. Look at the blessings that have been flooded upon you. You've come from wrath to grace. You were once dead. You're now alive. You have a new master. You're kicking that way, not that way at work. You have a new boss. What has changed at work? As you go in on Monday morning, your boss is Jesus Christ. Will you remember that? You have a new goal. Glance through the list of performance review headings in our passage, and you'll see that they have to do primarily with character, attitude, reliability, and approach. A new goal, and under this goal, a number of such headings. There is now to be a careful integrity. Verses 5 and 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, 
just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. The point is that we are to work studiously and conscientiously even when the boss isn't looking. We are to be serious about our work, doing a good day's work, even when the boss is on holiday or away on a conference. We have a new goal, careful integrity. Fresh accountability, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. Now, I am not answerable then simply to my earthly boss. This answers the question so often put, what if my boss is such a rank pagan that he asks me to do something that in conscience as a Christian I simply can't do? Well, forgive me for using a personal illustration from my insalubrious and rather uneventful career in the British Army. That was an issue I faced as a young army officer. My commanding officer asked me to do to order my soldiers to do something that in all conscience no Christian ever could do. And so, I remember very well, it's imprinted on my brain, booking an appointment with the adjutant to go and see the commanding officer, going into the commanding officer's office and saying to him, I'm very sorry, I cannot obey that order. Do with me as you will. I have a higher command. That's not why I left the army, by the way. (laughs) We have a new goal, a different attitude. Integrity, accountability. You are now accountable to the Lord, not to your boss, ultimately. You are to serve your boss with integrity because God put your boss over you. But ultimately, you have a higher command. And now you're to have a different attitude. Doing the will of God from the heart, there is to be a readiness to work and to work hard, knowing that though the senior staff nurse or departmental head or line manager or foreman has told you to do such and such, because Jesus Christ is head over all things, then for the sake of the gospel, as cosmetic for the gospel... You are to do the will of God from the heart. Do you see how this fits with our first talk yesterday evening? Yes, work is good. There is dignity. There is responsibility. There is necessity. You're working for the Lord. Becoming a Christian then doesn't make me a worse worker or a worse manager or a worse business owner. I have a new boss and a new goal, careful integrity, higher accountability, different attitude. And as I work it out, so I demonstrate to the watching world how God has redeemed me from a surly, rebellious, anti-God individual to a humble, hard-working, conscientious My aim is now to work for the Lord in a way that pleases the Lord, giving service to the Lord, knowing that the Lord is watching and he is concerned. This will involve kindness and consideration to my different colleagues. This will involve looking out for the new arrival at work. This will involve the way I treat someone in direct competition with me. This will involve my language, my sense of humor, my unwillingness to gossip, to share in tittle-tattle, the ability to say sorry 
I got it wrong. And to those of you who work at home, and no doubt there are quite a number of people who do that, think through how that is going to affect your work at home as you engage in yet another mundane task that you've done day after day after day after day for the last 20 years, and you cook another meal or clean up another meal or wash up another thing or do the washing or whatever it happens to be, I work unto the Lord. A new master. Would this not change every workplace in the country of Malaysia? I don't need to give you a whole series of applications. It's so obvious. Uh, Mike Farmer, one of our church wardens at St. Helens, now Lord Farmer, I remember him saying, don't be shy about being a Christian at work. As a Christian, you will be more reliable, more honest, more committed, more hardworking than any other of the employees because you're working as unto the Lord. So speak openly about being a Christian. Make sure you talk to your colleagues that about being a Christian and you evangelize them because they will be very loath to sack you. It would be worth asking after this talk, what would it be like if I were to conduct my work, this project, the next assignment, with this attitude? a new boss, a new goal, a new reward. Did you notice that in verses 8 and 9? Because you know that the Lord, will, the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that it, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. So in most areas of work, there's some form of end of quarter or end of year review. Do you have one of those? An annual appraisal, a biennial inspection, a quarterly remuneration, peer group approval, 360 degree assessment. Paul's point is this. My eye is not on my peers. My concern is not for my earthly, fleshly boss first and foremost, my boss may be a despot or a soft touch or a pushover or a taskmaster, but my aim is not to get the best 360-degree appraisal or to make the most money in the company or even necessarily to keep my job at all costs. I have a higher goal, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ultimately will subject all things to himself. And I am working for him in this broken world. Is this not liberating? Isn't it liberating? Some of you will have bosses who make the, uh, uh, the person that I was talking about yesterday evening from the sitcom The Office appear positively benign. He's an absolute creep of a boss. And I've spoken to people over the last 20 years who have been bullied, verbally abused, manipulated, mistreated, financially and contractually at work. Thankfully, God has put in place, as part of his judgment in this present order, this world, authority structures, Romans 13. It is not wrong to appeal to such where we have them. But we're not in the majority in having such things in the world. You go to many other countries 
and you will find there's no court of appeal. And in 1 Peter, the apostle speaks of the most wretched abuse of workers by their employers. And in the context of workplace injustice, Peter says to his readers, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for Christ suffered for you. So do you have a beast of a boss? You may have recourse to appeal. There's nothing wrong in that. God has put in place human authorities as part of his judgment in this fallen world. But if you do not, if you do not, then Jesus sees and Jesus will reward you ultimately. Well, how do we work and act on this? And I suspect one or two people are saying, it's all very well, you've no idea what my workplace is like, William. It's all very well, you standing up there. You're about to fly out of Malaysia to some other sunny clime. I'm going to Singapore, actually. It's not that good. So I'll say the opposite when I get there. But anyway, there we go. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so how do we actually act? How do we actually act on this? May I just say a, a word of in, a, encouragement in terms of the liberation of this? Um, I spoke on the subject of work uh, over four weeks uh, a number of years ago at St. Helens to the Sunday evening congregation. And halfway through the series on a Monday evening, we have our monthly church prayer meeting. And one of the, uh, a couple of individuals who'd been at the work series stood up and shared how liberating it had been um, to realize that in their mundane work, they were actually working for the Lord. They had a higher goal. How do we put this into practice? Well, in the context of Ephesians, Paul prays twice. Here is the engine room, chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, and chapter 3, chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. I keep asking that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then Ephesians 3, verse 14, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So how will this work out for you tomorrow in the workplace? You might ask that of the person sitting next to you. And you might then respond, let me pray for you. Because it's only as they grasp the authority and love of the Lord Jesus that they will actually be able to do anything about it. What has changed at work? Second question, what now matters? Did you notice that the apostle has nothing to say about what particular job I do and everything to say about how I do it? If you trace through all the other New Testament references, you will find precisely the same emphasis. There are no top tips. 
there are no top tips on finding the most rewarding and fulfilling avenues for work. There is nothing about how to fulfill your God-given potential at work. There is no suggestion at all that each of us has a particular calling to a particular job. As we saw in talk one, the word calling is only ever used once with reference to work. Every other reference is to becoming a Christian, and it is never used of a special calling into either paid full-time Christian work, when people talk about you having a calling to be a a full-time Bible teacher, they're misusing the word of call. The only use, one use of the word calling in work applies to the general sphere of labor that a person finds themselves in. What matters then at work is not what I do, but who I am. What matters at work is not what I do, but who I am. Might I suggest something really rather revolutionary for you? God is not particularly bothered what job you do. Whether you work as an accountant or in an abattoir, whether you are a solicitor or a staff nurse, whether you are in management or manual labor is really pretty irrelevant. There's nothing about it in the Bible. Nothing. What God's concerned is who you are. Engineering is much the same as bricklaying. And as I said yesterday, being a sewage worker is considerably more useful in Malaysia than being a doctor. In fact, as we suggested, the vast majority of the global labor force has little or precisely no choice in what they do when it comes to jobs. Deciding what job I do is a luxury of the top 5% of the world's labor force. It's only very few people who fret about such things, and the Bible has nothing to say on it. God is not particularly concerned what job you do, uh, uh, unless you decide you want to be a prostitute, or to aid and abet, or to be involved in money laundering, or something like that. It's not what you do. It's who you are. And may I also suggest that you may be in a very high-flying job with, because you've got certain gifts and so forth. But may I suggest there are probably hundreds of thousands of people in other countries with equally as many gifts and abilities as you who through pure force of circumstance are currently cleaning out a cow shed. It just happens to be where you've been born. So don't get into this silly notion that you deserve it. No, you don't. There are people making bricks and then bashing them into gravel, sitting on the streets in Bangladesh, who are far more able than you are. So, if God isn't particularly concerned what I do, but rather who I am, well, then we are free. Isn't that liberating? You're free. You're free to find 
whatever you want to do, but more importantly, you're free to work in the area that is going to bring most glory to God. And we'll talk about that in the next talk because the thing that will bring most glory to God is bringing people to know Jesus Christ. What does matter to God, however, is who you are. Do you serve your new master at work? Do you have his goals at work? Do you seek his reward, his approval, his end-of-quarter appraisal? This is immensely liberating. We've been brought up on the mantra that we must fulfill our potential, and a moment's thought indicates that this is an impossible target in the brief lifespan that each of us has been allotted. By the time you get to my age, and I'm still very young, but by the time you get to my age, you will begin to realize that there were any number of areas that you could have fulfilled your potential in. But you just haven't. You haven't had time. I could have been a farmer. I could have been an army officer. Well, I probably ended up at Lance Corporal, but I could have had a career in the army. I could have been a teacher. I ended up as a vicar. But the idea that I have to fulfill my potential by finding the one thing and I fulfill my potential by, by locating that one thing is absurd. You're far bigger than that. Now, I fulfill my potential by being the person he has made me as I submit to him, surrender to him, serve him, and then in the new creation are liberated to enjoy eternity in a thousand million different ways. There's where my potential will be fulfilled. And so you see these poor secularist creatures, these poor pagans who surround us in their middle-class um, ignorance, desperately trying to fulfill their potential and running round the hamster wheel because they've only got 70 years to fulfill it in. Poor, poor slaves. You've come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're free. You can serve him in this area or that area or the other. It doesn't really matter which. What matters is who you are and that you use the gifts he's given you to bring glory to him by telling people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you're going to have eternity to fulfill your potential. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know, often we say to ourselves when we travel around the world and all the rest of it, oh, wouldn't it be nice to visit such and such a place and take a few days off here? I mean, I, well, I don't say that very much, but people, others, other people who travel with me sometimes say it. I won't mention any names. Wouldn't it be nice to try, if fulfill our potential in this area or that area or the other area? Go, go, sorry, go and see this and go and see that. And my answer is usually, yeah, we got, we got eternity to do that. Plenty of time for exploring. I, I'm really looking to going to that. Where's, where's that place you're working, Albert? Amadam... Yeah, it's somewhere up at the top there. It looks absolutely... I went on and visited his luxury hotel. It's absolutely glorious. I can't wait to go there. In heaven. I've got eternity to enjoy that. I don't have to run around the hamster wheel feeling I've got to fill my bucket list with visiting these... Anyway, it'll be a heck of a lot better in the new creation, that shoddy place that he's in charge of. So what matters is what I do. Sorry, what matters is who I am. When you think about it, you see, what I do won't last. And that brings us to this next area.
what now matters at work, not what I do, but who I am, not what I achieve, but who I'm serving. Allow me to quote from an email that I received following a discussion on this subject from one of the young staff workers who had the capacity to have been a top medic in our country. He wrote, What the New Testament holds up as glorifying to God is more about character, honesty, integrity, compassion, that are about realizing our potential in a particular job. Ephesians and Colossians are about working heartily even when we're not being watched, which is surely about integrity and attitude rather than self-realization. Although this may mean that I am the best cashier I can be, it may not always. Sometimes I'll be a patient, generous employee, but won't be as good as I could have been because I followed other New Testament imperatives. I may not be as good a doctor because although I fulfill my commitment to read up on the latest treatments, I've showed some integrity, I've also committed to meeting with my church family. I may work heartily in the checkouts at the supermarket, but I don't ascend into management because I've recognized the opportunities for the gospel are much greater on the counter than in the back office. My goal then is not to be the best I can be, but to be the most Christ-like I can be. Now listen to this. He said this. This is a brilliant observation. I take it that Jesus worked as a carpenter with integrity, respect for authority, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. But I've no reason to think that his work transformed the Judean furniture industry. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure he could have done that if he'd been the best carpenter he could be. (laughs) Of course he could have. So what matters at work? Not what I do, who I am. Not what I achieve, who I'm serving. Not how I'm rewarded, but when I'm rewarded. A word on that pagan idea, career. So career came into the English language from the French. It's always the French's fault. And it came into the English language from the French in, I think, the 15th or 14th century. Carrier is the French word, to rush headlong. It was used of horses heading along a set track in horse races. The idea that you rush headlong in anything other than Christ-likeness and bringing glory to him by enabling others to come and know the Lord Jesus is quite simply pagan. I mean, the ambition to be the top of my firm, to get ahead of everybody else, to pursue the career ladder, to have the blinkers on, that's what they did in the carrier races. They put blinker on the horses so that they could run headlong. The idea to be blinkered like this, pursuing my career, because I want to find advancement in the company because I'm following a career path, where did you get that idea from, if you call yourself Christian? It's rank pagan. You need to repent. My career is to bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has conquered sin. He is raised on high. He rules the universe. One day, every knee in heaven and earth will bow to him. 
My career is to bring glory to him by spreading his glorious gospel and seeing other people also liberated from the slavery of whatever pagan idol they follow, even if their idol is their career. So we need to start thinking Christianly. Finally, what will last? As we come to a close in this session, and I think we've still got a couple of more minutes, let me look at the timetable. Oh, yes. We've got five more minutes. As we come to a close, I want to tackle an idea that is put forward by some in our circles that something of the specific work we do ourselves on this earth will carry through into God's new creation. Now, you will find even some of the most popular authors in today's evangelical world from America, from New York, uh, suggest that something of the specific work we do ourselves in this earth will carry through into the new creation. The teaching flows out of a right idea that the new creation will be physical and we will work in it. The teaching flows out of a wrong idea that there will be particular, specific, and real continuity between the physical and mental labor I engage in in this creation and the physical realm of the next. The idea has been put forward using the parable of J.R. Tolkien entitled A Leaf Called Niggle. And it has also been championed by a wrong handling of one verse in Revelation chapter 1 that the kings will bring their glory into the new creation. Tolkien's parable, Leaf, pictures an artist working on a great work of art, and it's, he has to go up his ladder to do his work, but he's a niggly kind of guy, hence niggle, and he keeps getting distracted, and it's going to be a glorious landscape and he works on one leaf. He's a bit of a perfectionist. He works on just one leaf, up the ladder, and then he gets distracted, down the ladder, up the ladder again, gets distracted, probably has an iPhone, down the ladder again, up the ladder, etc., etc., etc. And eventually, he gets to the end of his life, and he's only, planted one, he's only painted one leaf. But lo and behold, he arrives in the new creation, and there is his picture completed. And one author goes so far as to say that when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, be steadfast, immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Though 1 Corinthians 15, 58 speaks about our labor in the Lord, Tolkien's parable allows us to apply it to all our work. Now, do you see what the author has done at that point? He's got a grid. He wants to find continuity between culture in this world and culture in the next. He wants to prize and value high culture. It's interesting. It's always sort of um, things like Mozart and um, that is never thrash metal or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? They, they always prize the really kind of middle class stuff. He can't find a verse in the Bible to justify what he's got to say. So he takes a verse and acknowledges that it's about our work in the Lord, i.e. making Christ known, and evangelism and so forth. And he says, but this verse allows us to justify my position, which incidentally I can't find a verse that actually says it in the Bible to say it. I mean, that is really, really bad. 
Incidentally, Tolkien's parable, Leaf by Nagel, I, I bought it, the book, read it. It's actually Roman Catholic. It, it was sponsored by the Roman Catholic Church, and Nigel goes to purgatory to complete his work and his painting. It's a promotion of purgatory. Now, this teaching that something that you do is really catching hold in evangelical circles, which is why I'm spending time on it and being really quite specific about it, it is seriously wrong, damaging, and dangerous. I've written to the author of that particular book. We've had a correspondence. He was gracious enough to reply and to row back from the position he took in the book. That's humble, but he will not withdraw the book from the bookstalls. And so a lot of workers are being sucked into this nonsense. It doesn't work on the level of logic. So, are you in insurance? Hmm, I work on insurance. My insurance work in the new creation? Really? Insurance in the new creation? Do you think so? I think not. Are you a doctor (laughs) helping people's ailments? You're doctoring? In, in the new creation, uh, every tear, there will be no more sickness. Oh, but doctors will yeah, it's absolute nonsense, isn't it? Not only does it not work on the level of logic, it also fails on the level of handling the New Testament correctly. Jesus speaks of the heavens, the sun and the star falling, of complete and cataclysmic destruction. Peter speaks about this world being burnt up and dissolved. There is absolutely no New Testament suggestion that our work in this world, whatever funny little thing you've been working at all of your life, is going to carry through into the next. There just isn't. Yes, it will be physical, but your work is going to be burned up. It's futile. That's the curse, the fall. Hence 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Your labor in the Lord, now that's not in vain. And the verse in Revelation 21, 24 to 26, which speaks about the kings bringing their glory into it, widely, widely mishandled. Um, It's talking about the future and the kings of the earth, the sub-regents in the new creation, bringing their new creation glory in. It's not talking about us bringing our culture from today in. And as I say, you know, you can really smell a rat when these guys say, oh yeah, Rachmaninoff, his work will be there and um, such and such a, a group, their work will be there and the great Renoirs and Rembrandts, they'll be there. Um, but you won't have modern art. Let's, let's hope you won't. <laughs> what will last? Not that piece of music, not that piece of art, not that architectural masterpiece. Your character, your integrity, your kind word to a colleague, your honest attitude, your love, that'll last. And is it not therefore worth praying about who you are at work and fretting a lot less about what you do? Who's in charge? Jesus.
Well, once again, lots to, for us to be thinking about there. A new boss, a new goal, a new reward. Not what I do, but who I am. Not what I achieve, but who I am serving. Not what I'm awarded, but when. My career is to bring glory to Christ by spreading his gospel. Well, just before we go off to lunch, why don't we turn again to the person uh, next to us and don't talk for too much, but pray about uh, what you've heard and pray that we indeed would uh, care a lot more about who we are than what we do. I'll close in prayer in a couple of minutes' time.
Well, if you just uh, bring those prayers to a close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that Jesus is our risen Lord and that you have called us to serve him. Father, we do pray indeed that you would help us to focus rightly on what matters to you, to be the people that you want us to be, full of integrity, full of accountability and love, to set our our hearts and minds on the reward that matters the most, not the praise of people, but the praise of our King. Father, help us to look for our significance and our purpose, not in what we do, but in what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Lord, we thank you now that we can uh, ponder these things further as we share this meal together. We thank you for the food that has been provided. We thank you for your generosity in so many ways in our lives. We pray that you would help us to continue to encourage one another as we eat together and that you would be filling our hearts with thankfulness for all of your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, go off for, for lunch now. Uh, the, uh, we'll be resuming together at 1.30 p.m. here. Uh, it's Q&A straight after lunch. Uh, so do take the moment now, if you haven't already, to send through your, your questions or just write them uh, in the box. We'll be back here at 1.30. Enjoy lunch.